Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is episode six. I'm so excited to introduce my next guest. His name is Richard Capriola. Richard worked in the education system for 30 years, then he transitioned professions and was a mental health and substance use counselor for over 20 years, and more recently was an addiction specialist at the Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas for over a decade. There, he worked directly with teenagers suffering from substance use disorders and mental health issues. By the nature of his work, Richard has also helped many parents learn about addictive patterns and how to communicate and work with their children, offering them hope for a brighter future. He has a wealth of experience and wisdom offering practical ways for parents to communicate with and support their teenage children. Richard is also the author of the book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. Please take a listen. Hi, Richard. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. So after a career of education, what led you, you know, to your work with people suffering from mental health and substance use disorders? Well, after I transitioned uh, out of the field of education after about 30 some years, right. um, I uh, moved over and started working at a, a regional mental health crisis center. And we would take in patients from the emergency rooms um, that, that needed uh, short-term uh, uh, counseling at the crisis center. And I noticed that many of them had not only a mental health crisis they were struggling with, but also a substance abuse issue. So I went back to the University of Illinois and obtained a master's degree in what is addictions counseling. I continued to work at the uh, crisis center for a while until I was offered a job at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Menninger Clinic is a large psychiatric hospital that serves both teenagers and, and adults with uh, a severe, serious mental health uh, diagnoses and uh, substance abuse diagnoses. And I worked there for a little over a decade treating both teenagers and adults who have a diagnosis of uh, what we call a substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. I mean, the leap from education for the state of Illinois to adolescence seems to be quite a, a jump, was it? It, it was it was a uh, a, a leap, <laughs> but it was one that I really enjoyed and one that uh, I found very rewarding. Well, I think that it, it takes someone special to work with teens, especially those who uh, have a co-occurring disorder. So yeah. let's get right to it. What things do you see are the key challenges for these young people that have both a substance use disorder and a mental health disorder? I think the biggest challenge is to uh, really get an accurate diagnosis mm -hmm. and, a, and a treatment plan um, to move forward on dealing with the mental health aspect of what they're struggling with. So many times we put the focus on the substance abuse, but we often undiagnose and miss 
the underlying mental health issue that that young person is struggling with, oftentimes to medicate uh, that underlying issue. Uh, the example that I uh, would uh, share with you is mm -hmm. that many of the teenagers that I worked with at Menninger Clinic were smoking marijuana multiple times a day. And when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking so much marijuana, the number one answer that came back was it helps me with my anxiety. So for mm -hmm. some kids, not all, but for some kids, there is an underlying psychological reason as to why they're using a substance like marijuana or alcohol to medicate that underlying issue that unfortunately often gets undiagnosed and treated. I wonder why that is. I mean, what, what from your work, how did you come to the notion that it's anxiety or some underlying thing, I mean, and that it was missed. What makes you say that? Well, because many of the kids that were coming in uh, to, to our hospital had not had the benefit of a comprehensive assessment, sure. a comprehensive evaluation, which includes an addictions assessment, a, a, a detailed psychological assessment, a complete medical workup. So one of the benefits of coming into Menninger Clinic was that uh, they, they received a whole range of psychological assessments. Sure. And, and, and many times we were able to uncover uh, what had previously been undiagnosed disorders. Sure. Okay. So with that, what are the main differences, and we're going to shift for, for a second, what are the main differences other, other than the obvious between adult addiction and adolescent addictive patterns? I think there's two big differences. Uh, the first is in brain development. Sure. Uh, the, the adult addict's brain is pretty much fully formed after age 24, 25. Sure. So the adult brain is fully full, uh, fully uh, developed, whereas the adolescent brain is in the process of being developed. It doesn't get developed till around 24, 25. Mm -hmm. So the first big difference between adult addiction and adolescent addiction has to do with the differences in the brain between an adult and an adolescent. The second big difference is in terms of consequences. Many adults who are addicted to a substance have faced catastrophic consequences. Sure. These are major consequences. They might have lost a marriage. They might have lost a family. Uh, they, they may have been incarcerated. These are catastrophic consequences that many adults unfortunately face when they're addicted to a substance. Adolescents, on the other hand, have faced very few consequences. You know, their biggest consequences is their family coming down on them or grounding them, but nowhere near the catastrophic type of consequences that unfortunately many adult addicts face. Sure. So the two differences, brain development and consequences. Mm -hmm. And with COVID, what was the impact on addiction in youth in this, in the, in this country, would you say? What we saw, what the research has showed uh, and taught us is that during uh, the, the COVID year, basically 2021, there was a significant decline in adolescent substance abuse uh, across all substances. You know, for example, the percentage of teenagers, uh, high school seniors that were drinking alcohol dropped from 55 down to 47 percent. Wow. In 10th grade, it dropped from 41 percent down to 29 percent. And even marijuana and vaping had, uh, had, had declined significantly during 2021. 
uh, across all drugs. Uh, and previous to the pandemic, what we had seen was a surge in vaping. For three years, a surge in vaping substances like nicotine and marijuana. So the pandemic had the result of, of reducing significantly uh, adolescent substance abuse. Unfortunately, during that same period of time, the mental health sure. crisis that we had seen, that we'd seen for 10 years uh, increasing, just increased dramatically during the pandemic year. So 2021, we saw a decline in substance abuse, but an increase in the mental health crisis. So because of that, what do you think the thoughts are of why the use was less? Is it because of access was less and they were isolated more? I think that's a big part of it. They were pulled away from school. They were pulled away from their classroom environment. Mm -hmm. They were pulled away from many of their social or or extracurricular activities. They were isolated away from their friends. Many were doing online uh, education from home. They just did not have the interaction with their peers and the social environment that they were used to. And I think that contributed in a large way to the reduction that we that we saw. Now, uh, after the after the first of next year. We'll get data on what happened during 2022, and we'll be able to see if the research shows us now that kids are back into the traditional uh, classroom environment, school environment, if there's an increase in, in substance abuse. In other words, if the decline, it, was it maintained or did it rebound and go back up? Mm -hmm. I know you can't predict the future, but what do you think it might be understanding think, this trend? I think it'll go back up. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much, but I think sure. it'll probably go back up. Okay. And what are the teens using these days? I know marijuana and alcohol have always been kind of primary. Is that still the same? You're absolutely right. For a long, long period of time, the primary drugs that that uh, teenagers have been attracted to are alcohol and marijuana. There's been some exposure to the so-called harder core drugs, but really it's less than 5%. Teenagers are still predominantly using alcohol and marijuana. But for three years prior to the pandemic, uh, what we had seen was a dramatic increase in teenagers vaping substances like nicotine and marijuana. It was an alarming increase for three years. Uh, so I would say that the drugs that are, that are most popular continue to be alcohol and marijuana, but now we can also include vaping of nicotine and marijuana. And would you say that's different than cigarette smoking? Yes, it's different you know, only from the standpoint that uh, when, when, when teenagers are smoking cigarettes, which ironically now is at an all-time low, uh, they're not, they not smoking uh, tobacco uh, mm. like they used to. But what's happened is they have switched from smoking tobacco to vaping nicotine. So while they were smoking cigarettes and cigars to some extent, they have now switched over to getting their getting their nicotine by vaping rather than through tobacco and cigarettes. Um, the advantage to that, I suppose, is that um, when they're smoking cigarettes and tobacco, they're getting hundreds of carcinogens in with the tobacco, whereas where they're vaping nicotine, they're just getting pure nicotine. Um, the downside is that because they're getting higher concentrations of nicotine, it becomes more addictive. Right. So the, the severity is higher. Yes. So when, what do you think the warning signs um, for parents to look for? 
You know, when I was working with teenagers at Menninger Clinic, I would often sit across from families mm -hmm. and I would go through their child's history of using a substance, what substance they were using, when did they start using, how often they were using, and give the family a diagnosis of a substance use disorder. And sometimes they would look across at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would say, I sort of knew something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. Now, these are good parents. These are very good parents doing the best job that they can. Sure. They miss the warning signs because nobody told them what to look for. Nobody ever told them mm -hmm. what they should be looking for. So when I left Menninger Clinic, I wrote my book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. And mm -hmm. I included warning signs for alcohol, warning signs for marijuana. I included warning signs for a child that might be developing an eating disorder and mm -hmm. warning signs for a child that might be self-harming themselves. Because sometimes, not always, but sometimes a child will be developing an eating disorder or cutting on themselves or self-injuring themselves in addition to using the substance. So parents, I felt parents needed to know what those warning signs were as well. Those are all in the book. But as a general rule, what I say to parents, what I recommend to parents is pay attention to the changes that you see in your child. You know your child better than anyone. So pay attention to the changes that you see in your child. Don't assume that they're just normal acting out adolescent behaviors. They might be that, but they might also be a sign or an indication that there's something else going on underneath the surface that you need to be aware of. Some examples would be a child whose grades are starting to decline, uh, a child who used to enjoy participating in sports or extracurricular activities no longer wants to participate or enjoys participation, um, a child who used to introduce you to their friends. You knew who their friends were. You might have even known who their family members were. Now becomes very secretive of who their friends are and becomes very secretive of where they've been. And then uh, obviously, if you find any paraphernalia uh, or strange odors around your child's house or any paraphernalia in the house, then I think you need to be concerned. If some of these warning signs tend to come and go fairly quickly, it's probably not too concerning. But if they tend to linger on and on and on, and then you begin to see more and more of the warning signs, uh, then, it's, then it's probably best that you get some professional assessments and advice as to what's going on. And so monitoring behaviors um, in your yes. child is pretty key. Yes. You know, when, when you have parents go, wow, I had no idea, or we, we suspected, um, what, what, how can parents kind of approach their teen, especially to your point, if they're really secretive or defensive or non-communicative, if they're isolating, you know, if they're no longer, like, eating with the rest of the family, they're or truant, all that kind of stuff. How would you help parents? What should they think about on how to approach their child? I think the first thing you want to do as a parent, if you have any concerns at all, is to have a discussion with your child. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, you don't criticize the child. You don't accuse them of anything. You don't threaten them and you don't punish them. You want to come at this conversation with an inquiring point of view. In other words, I'm seeing these behaviors 
can you help me understand why I'm seeing this? Or I'm concerned about such and such. Can you help me understand why I might be concerned about these things? So you want to approach this discussion in a way that is an inquiring point of view. Express how you're feeling. Express your concerns. Express your worries. Express your observations. And invite the child to help you understand why you're seeing those things and why you're having those concerns concerns. Now, that's likely to be a discussion that's going to go one of two ways. Right. It's either going to blow it's either going to blow up and the child's going to become argumentative and defensive and oppositional mm-hmm. or the child might actually share some information with you. But regardless of how it goes, if you are still concerned as a parent, then you need to move to the next step which is to get some of the psychi- psychological assessments uh, and addictions assessments that I recommend in my book mm-hmm. so that you can rule in or rule out whether or not there's an issue that needs to be treated. So with your experience at the clinic um, and seeing kids coming in with with co-occurring disorders, I would imagine many of them didn't want to be there. All of them didn't want to be there. Right, (laughs) so the comment was probably, fuck no, right? And so, I mean, and that translates also at home in some ways, like, I don't want to talk about that. So... In, in the clinic, there are some controls. Right. But at home, if they fly off the handle, they become argumentative, like you said, or leave, that's more concerning, right? It is more concerning. And, and you know, it's it's probably not going to be the first time your, your child has told you no. So right. you, you've learned how to deal with this either in a positive way or negative way. Um, but But you're the parent. You have to take responsibility. You're the one in charge. You're the one who makes the decisions. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, almost all of the teenagers that came into the hospital didn't want to be there. They, bar- they tried to bargain and beg and cry and shout and, and, and demand that they not go in. But quite honestly, the situation had gotten so serious that these parents felt as if they had no other option other than to hospitalize their child. Mm-hmm. So the earlier you can see the warning signs, the earlier you can intervene and get treatment if it's needed, the more likely you are to, to get on top of this thing. It's, it's like any other thing, you know, this, the sooner you can discover it and treat it, the more likely you'll have a positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the type of parents. So one type of parent would be the unknowing and well-intended um, some not, you know, there's a series of different levels and, and parenting styles. We won't get into that. But for the parents who are currently in recovery, could be early recovery themselves, yeah. um, who may feel they have no right, you know, or experience shame and guilt, like, because I have fucked up so bad and I'm a bad parent anyway, how can I possibly talk to my children with any credibility, whether they're preteen or teen? about the consequences of using, don't do what I did. Um, a lot of single parents also who are early on in their recovery have shared that with me, that they feel like they have no rights. Um, but to your point, it's, it's about taking on the parent role. You are accountable. You do have this, this, this responsibility. Um, what would you say to folks or parents in those circumstances? I would say, first of all, um, many parents dealing with a, a, a child that's going through a substance use 
have intense emotions, intense mm -hmm. feelings. They begin to question, what kind of parent am I? Mm -hmm. uh, what went wrong? Why didn't I see these warning signs? What are people thinking about me? What's, what's, what's the community thinking about me? And all of these reactions and emotions are very normal. So what I say to those parents is, uh, if you're going through this, build a support system for yourself. You're going to need it. Maybe it's family, maybe it's friends, maybe it's your community, maybe it's your church, maybe it's a mental health a, a support group, but you're going to need a lot of support. This is going to be a journey and you deserve and you will need the support uh, to, to get through this. The other thing that I would say is to parents who have a history of using substances in their past. Mm -hmm. um, as difficult it might be for you, it can actually be a tremendous learning experience for your child. You have gone through this journey. You have seen the ups and the downs. You have faced the consequences. That can be a tremendous learning opportunity for your child and a bonding between you and your child where you are able to share openly and honestly what you're experience has been with substances. Um, and it's not necessarily that you're condoning it for your child, but you're trying to help them learn from your experiences. And that's part of what we do as parents. We want to teach our children from the experiences that we've had in life. So whether they're positive or negative, so that the positive ones they can benefit from and from the negative ones they can learn from. So I would say you have an opportunity to be able to share those experiences with your child and use this as an opportunity to help them see this in a different light. I think beautifully said. I mean, it, it's important for the parent who, wherever they come from or their walk in life, to be curious, and you said the word, to invite, um, as opposed to, because I'm sure you've seen parents terrified. One of the biggest things that I have seen is parents who are worried sick, um, are f afraid that their child could die, yeah. Um, um, the media doesn't do great either about the, the percentage of success for young people with drugs, especially with the opiate epidemic as well. Um, what would you say to, to parents, like you were mentioning, how do they manage their own fear? And like, oh, shit, what if, I, I don't know what to do, and I want to do all these things that you're saying, you know, but I'm so afraid that I don't want to upset them more and push them over the edge. I would say, first of all, it's it's very normal to, to be afraid of this topic of adolescent substance abuse. Yeah. But it's equally important, or it's even more important for you to be knowledgeable about this issue, to learn what you can about it, to learn the warning signs, to learn the options that you have, um, and, and, and to just feel more empowered over this. Knowledge is power. Sure. So the more is apparent, you can become familiar with this issue, the more knowledgeable you can become of this issue, um, hopefully the less fearful you will be. And that was one of the goals of why I wrote this book. I wanted parents to be able to read this book, walk away from this topic and say and think, I've got this. Mm -hmm. I feel a little less afraid. I feel a lot more confident. I hope I don't have to deal with this. But if I do, 
I feel more confident and I know what to do. So knowledge is power. And, 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 and the more we know about this topic, the more likely we are to catch the warning signs early, the more likely we are to intervene, and therefore the more likely we are to have a positive outcome. I think that's great. And for adults, um, you know, families who are trying to help their loved one often go through similar emotions, whether it's yeah. a grown-up or a child. Um, for adults, they do interventions, you know, not the type that you see on TV, but where families come together, maybe um, a specialist or professional is involved to facilitate, you know, that process. Is that something that you would recommend to do with a child? Like a kind of a form of intervention if the parents feel they can't do it alone? I think it depends on what you what your reaction is from that child sure. when you first bring up this issue. Um, it, it may be that an intervention will work very well with that child. Uh, on the other hand, it may not work very well. <laughs> you know, some 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 kids, the, a lot of the kids that I worked with, quite quite honestly, I don't think an intervention would have made any difference in their attitude. They were just dead set about you know coming into the hospital. Uh, but not every child needs a hospital setting. Many children will do well in outpatient or an in intensive outpatient uh, uh, treatment. Um, so I think it really gets down to your assessment as a parent as to what you think the best approach is going to be. Maybe in consultation with some professionals like a psychologist or, mm -hmm. or an addictions counselor that can give you some feedback as to, okay, this is the best way to approach this with your child. Mm -hmm. And at what point did you see the, the young people that you worked in in the clinic turn it around well, they would come into um, either treatment or assessment. I worked on two different units. One was a psychiatric assessment and stabilization unit, uh -huh. uh, mostly for adults. Uh -huh. And then I worked on an adolescent treatment program, which was both a combination of short-term assessment for three weeks and, and then some treatment. Many of those kids, because of the severity of the underlying issue, were mm -hmm. sent on to uh, residential programs. But kids that would come into the program, as I said, earlier were, were very oppositional. Uh, they didn't want to be there. Uh, and, and But what I saw was after they were in treatment for a while and they settled into the program and they got to know the other kids that were there and the staff, you know, within a fairly short period of time, they settled down, they became less angry, and they became more engaged in the treatment and the program in terms of, in terms of individual uh, counseling, in terms of group therapy. They got involved in the program. And within just a couple of weeks, I saw a tremendous change in their attitude and, and, and an increase in their participation. Many of them went on to longer-term residential treatment programs, uh -huh. and I heard back from some of them, and they did remarkably well. The thing that we know is that treatment works. Yes. We know that treatment works. Mm -hmm. So some of these kids uh, that, that I heard back from, there were some remarkable success stories on how they had gone through the treatment, how they'd gone on to finish high school and gone on to college and, and done remarkably well. So there is hope then. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's the big message that I want parents to understand. There is hope. We know that treatment works. We know that treatment works. Obviously, the sooner you catch the warning signs and intervene and get to treatment, the more likely you are to have uh, a positive outcome sooner. But we know that treatment works. 
Well, I am really glad that you are doing this work. I mean, you've been in the field for a really long time, right? (laughs) (laughs) And and then you're like, well, I'm done. And then you wrote this book. So you were inspired just really briefly about your book. You were inspired to, because you have authored other books as well. Um, But this is unique. Is that is that true from the other it writing is. you've had? It is, yes. So after doing twenty years, basically in this field of addiction and substance use, and then another decade with adolescents, um, you finished that part of your career, and you decided to write a book because not a lot was out there. What was, what was your inspiration to do that? My inspiration was the families that I worked with yeah. when I was at Menninger Clinic and, and seeing the struggle that they went through and seeing the pain that they went through and, 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 and the feelings that they expressed in terms of how did I not catch this? How did I miss all of this that was right in front of me? How did I miss the warning signs? And like I said, they missed the warning signs because they're good parents and nobody told them what to look for. So what motivated me to want to write the book was the fact that these parents were going through these emotional, psychological, intense emotions and feeling very bad about the fact that they didn't know what the warning signs were. They didn't know what assessments to get done. They didn't know what treatment options were available. They didn't know the questions to ask a potential treatment program. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to pack all that information into this book that runs about a hundred and some pages. And I kept it short because I know parents are busy. They don't have time to read volumes of information. <laughs> Especially when their kids like going apeshit. Yeah, you know? that's right. So yeah, that's right. Really a good quick read. Um, I think those things are really helpful. You know, this is not like a self-help. It's really literally like the title of your book. It is a parent's guide of how to talk to them. Some pretty basic and concrete steps. Um, because you're right. It's kind of like a roadmap. It is. It's hard enough to find a facility to help yourself or your child, especially with mental health issues on top of uh, addiction or substance use disorders, um, and just who to call, what to even ask. I think that's the, the big one that um, I'm struck with is how to even, what's the language to use, right? When you're talking to a provider and you're still learning what the hell is going on with your kid, um, that's got to be challenging. So it's really great to have something really easy to understand, a quick read without having to know a long history about pharmacology, about psychology, about neurobiology, all of this, because you've just put it in a really nice package. Um, what's the future for you? Well, the future is now that I'm in retirement, uh, I've been working with people like yourself who have been very gracious to offer me an opportunity to reach out to people about this book. Um, uh, This book is not about uh, sales. This book is about saving a child's life. And if this book saves just one child's life, then it's worth it. Um, So I spend quite a bit of my time right now doing interviews like this, trying Mm -hmm. to reach out to as many professionals and Mm -hmm. parents as I can to just let them know that this resource is available. Great. Do you have plan for another one? No. Okay. (laughs) You're like, no, I'm retired. 
I keep no. reminding yourself that you're retired. Um, so, Richard, thank you again. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. May Lee Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting. You can find my podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.